0: Nats Chat is brought to you by Walters. Walk on over to Walters as the XFL has returned to D.C. at nearby Audi Field. Next home game is Sunday, March 5th.
1: Walters is also the spot to be in Navy Yard for March Madness. More details to come as the NCAA tournament approaches. We're driven by the search
2: for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed.
3: Their work ethic has been really, really good, you know, for a few weeks, even though today was day one. Seeing everybody together, getting everybody in the circle of trust, talking to them guys, uh, a lot of energy today, which was which was awesome. It was a lot of fun, and uh, getting to meet the new guys uh, and talk to them face-to-face was pretty awesome as well.
0: And welcome to Nats Chat for Monday, February 20th, 2023. President's Day 2023. A happy President's Day to you and yours, and especially to the man known... As El Presidente, one of the best pitchers in National-slash-Expo's history, Dennis Martinez, along with MadisonSports.com Nationals insider Mark Zuckerman, who is in West Palm Beach, Florida, site of National Spring Training. I'm Al Galdi, host of the Al Galdi podcast. It is great to have you with us as National Spring Training has begun. You know, it is rather appropriate that uh, we are together with you on this President's Day because this also is the day on which Nats players, all Nats players, are supposed to be in camp. This is the time of year in which the phrase visa issues becomes prominent. Mark, do you anticipate writing the phrase visa issues at all in the coming days?
1: I sure hope not, Al. As of our taping of this, almost everybody's already here. Most of the position players reported early. There's a couple of guys left, and I don't think, knock on wood, any of them are visa issue candidates. So hopefully everyone is there come Monday morning, and it's it's a different camp. Than we've seen in the past. You don't walk in and have that one big name looming over everyone. Even last year, when we knew the team wasn't going to be good, you had Juan Soto, you had Steven Strasburg. Neither of those guys is here. Soto because he's in Peoria, Arizona now. Padres camp in Strasburg because he's still in DC and isn't ready to pitch yet. And I know we're going to get to that here. So it's a different feeling, but there's a lot of young guys, there's a lot of enthusiasm for better or worse among them. And I'm interested to see how this all kind of comes together. The rebuild started, obviously, in July of 2021, but it feels like they've pretty much cut off almost all ties to the former nationals, and it's really in full swing now at this point.
0: Yeah, there's no doubt. And there's no secret being made about the state of things. I mean, it was interesting to me watching Mike Rizzo's extended press session with you guys this past Friday. And I don't think he actually finally said the R word rebuild, but it was used with him in questioning. And he certainly did not shy away from it. And he openly talked about how, you know, the evaluation of this season, it's not about wins and losses. And he really did sound like someone who has come to terms with, you know, the state of things.
3: Well, I see the progress. I see the, you know, the, the young big league players on the major league field. I see that backfield full of, of exciting prospects. And I, I see that uh, the plan is is taking place. It's taking root. And uh, I, I think this is a big year for, uh, for us to move forward with the plan.
0: So, yeah, there is a lot uh, that we do want to get to here with you over the course of this show. We do want to send out a special thank you to a great supporter of the Nats Chat podcast, Real estate master Jamie Coppersmith, who was uh, very nice uh, to have us out at uh, the City Ridge Complex in Washington, D.C. within the last few weeks here. We had a great time uh, hanging out with a bunch of Nats Chat listeners, talking about the Nationals, taking some great questions on the Nationals. So, certainly a lot of fun doing that.
2: For me, the the podcast was a great antidote to that to keep up with what was going on with the Nats. And um, so I advertised a little bit on it too, and I kept in touch with. uh, Tim Schovers, who started this and is kind of the behind-the-scenes guy. And uh, it keeps growing. And I thought it would be a fun event for those of us who
3: love the Nats or are interested in the Nats.
0: And uh, great to get going here in what is Season 3 of this podcast. So we thank everyone for listening. Always remember that you can subscribe to the podcast. Subscribing costs you nothing and make sure... That you never miss an episode. We'll be with you, uh, you know, over the course of the next few weeks here during spring training sporadically. And then once the season gets going, a new episode of this podcast after each Nationals game day. So we're off and running here. Mark has covered the team uh, since the team came here in 2005. This is a different stage for the Nationals franchise to be sure. And, you know, regarding spring training, I mean, there definitely hasn't been a ton of news, but It has been a little, um, I guess, odd because you know normally you think of spring training, right? You think about, okay, optimism reigns supreme and hope springs eternal. Here you had Nats spring training getting going last week. And shortly before the start of it, you had the death of the Nats founding principal owner, Ted Lerner, at the age of 97. And then just a day into spring training, we got the bad news regarding Steven Strasburg, this recurrence of nerve pain, and he has been shut down. And, you know, look, I know that it's not like anyone's looking at the Nats you know, with great optimism to begin with, but geez, I mean, that double whammy, and I'm not putting them on the same level, but Ted Lerner passes and then like from the get-go, you get more bad Steven Strasburg news. It's like, <laughs> man, could we at least have had a few days of good feeling before uh, some of the bad news started coming?
1: Yeah. Uh, and I get what you're saying there. I think I would also say, and for very different reasons, neither of those was a terribly unexpected development. Now, none of us knew that Ted Lerner was that sick, but at 97 years old, you never know. It can happen at any point. And, you know, with him, talk about a well-lived life. If we can all make it to 97 and be in as good of health as he was, let's be clear about this, the last several years through COVID, even last season, he was in great health physically and mentally and was still very much involved in the organization. Now, he had handed over day-to-day control to his son, Mark, in 2018. But he was definitely involved. He didn't just go off into retirement and hang out at his, uh, you know, Palm Springs estate for the last several years. He was involved, especially in the big decisions. And, you know, really right up almost to the end, somebody who was all there and, and, you know, physically and mentally on top of it. So, you know, I would hope that any of us can make it that far in life and have that kind of ending to it all. In Steven Strasberg's case, disappointing, of course. But I think we talked about this winter that there was always this understanding that even if he said he felt good as he began his throwing program, and he did, you always knew he had to start throwing off a mound, start throwing with some velocity, and that there was a decent chance that as he began that process, that issues were going to crop up again. And sure enough, they did. I think the only surprise, maybe from my perspective, is that this happened before he even got to Palm Beach. This happened at Nationals Park a few weeks ago. Now, maybe that was intentional. They wanted him to start trying it there because if there was an issue, there would be no reason to come down here. But what I gathered from Mike Rizzo in that session, I don't know how well it came across if you're just listening to it, if you watch the video of it, but he actually was getting a little bit emotional talking about Strasburg.
3: The thing I feel bad about is Strass. You know, he's, uh, you're talking about one of the best big game pitchers that's ever, the best big game pitcher the Nationals have ever had and uh, anywhere in baseball.
1: Sort of referring to this idea that he knows that Steven feels bad, first of all, but also this idea that he may not be able to end his career on his own terms. And I mean, that for the GM to actually be acknowledging that at this point, I think that's a pretty stark statement and tells you where they're at. You know, nothing definitive. They're still talking to doctors. If Stephen wants to try to come up with another way to attack this and go after it, they will support him in that. But I think there is an understanding that they are potentially moving towards the end of the road here and that they may have exhausted all of their options.
0: Yeah. I mean, you know, you follow the Nats, Right. Wednesday was the day on which we had the first workout for pitchers and catchers. And then it was later on Wednesday that Davey Martinez in a press conference made this Steven Strasburg reveal.
3: So Steven was, you know, if anybody worked hard, Steven worked his butt off. I mean, he really did this whole winter. He got to the point where he was throwing bullpen and he had a minor setback. Um, He's staying back in DC.
0: And it's like right away we're hit with this that Steven Strasburg has had another setback and to your point about this having happened at Nationals Park this happened off a second bullpen session the guy couldn't even make it through two bullpen sessions without having another problem and i mean look you do feel for the guy you know mike Rizzo expressed a lot of empathy for steven strasburg in that press session on friday and i get it i mean you know the contract is unavoidable but you can sort of separate that from he is a person, he is an athlete, this can't be easy for him. But man, I mean, it just slaps you right across the face. He couldn't make it through a second bullpen session off an entire offseason before he had a problem. And I know we talked about this a lot last year. I don't know how much Steven Strasburg conversation we're going to have this season because I don't know what there is left to say. But it just does feel like it's done. And that all that is left to happen is for him to concede that it's over. And, you know, then things are going to get interesting with this contract. But, you know, that's, that's a separate conversation. But man, it just feels like it's over. And you know, when Mike Rizzo on Friday was talking, and you're right, he did get emotional. If you watch the video, and for those of you who don't know, you can watch the video on the uh Masson YouTube channel. There's a Masson Nationals YouTube channel at which you can watch these press conferences. Rizzo like welled up. He got like red in the face, it looked like it maybe his eyes even got watery. But you're right, like if you listen to the audio, you can't really tell, but he he did like turn red. He looked like he was getting upset. But even he said like he wasn't really surprised by this. And I think that kind of stands out as much as anything to where no one is surprised by this. You know, like the fact that this happened again off a second bullpen session isn't really that surprising. And so I don't know where you go from here. I don't know how you can feel like, okay, well, let's just give it another shot. Like, okay, you can. But I mean, does anyone expect a different outcome?
1: No, I mean, not without some other kind of dramatic development here. And I I, I think the key is like, you can go talk to doctors. You can try to come up with some kind of plan. but. I think it's clear that what they've been trying to do hasn't worked. And to think that, well, just with more rest and then you start up again, that that's going to result in anything different. I also don't think, and I don't know that it would make a difference or it's even being recommended to him, but I also have got to believe that there's no other surgery to take place. And even if it was offered to him, he may not want to do that again. The man has had quite a few of these now, and I'm not sure that he really wants his arm or his shoulder cut into Again. And so I think that's where the sadness comes in that, you know, we all want to believe that we can go out on our own terms, that a player can decide when his career is over. And, you know, Ryan Zimmerman, he got to do that. And it was a really special thing for him. Most players, unfortunately, don't have that opportunity. The game tells them when they're done, either because their performance gets to be such that it's not competitive anymore or their body breaks down. And they can't do it anymore. And that seems to be where this is going. And I think that's the sad part of it is that for all that Steven has given to the organization and all that he's put on his arm and everything else and the highs that he had, certainly, to lead them to their best moment in in franchise history, you would have hoped that he'd get to reap the benefits of that, not just financially because, of course, he's got that, but that you could continue on. I, I remember thinking after the World Series that year, like, he still got a shot at the Hall of Fame. You know, if he could stay healthy, it was going to require several more seasons of pitching at that level. If he could stay healthy, that was always a concern with him. But I mean, he's made eight starts since then, made one last year. He doesn't appear as though he's going to be ready to make one anytime soon this year. And I, I think there was even also deep down, even if they knew he's getting close to the end, this idea of, well, maybe he'd be good enough to come back and pitch a little bit and he could pitch at Nationals Park. Remember last year it was in Miami come back and pitch at least once, maybe in front of the home fans. And again, who knows? Maybe there's some chance that could still happen. But where he is right now, it seems like a long way off. And I think they are getting closer here to acknowledging that they've uh, approached the end of the road.
0: It really is something. I mean, we know that major league history is filled with pitchers who fall off a cliff, right? Like it just kind of goes. I can't think of another instance of this Drastic and sudden of a fall where October 2019, he's the World Series MVP. December 2019, he gets the 70 year, $245 million contract. And then that's it. He's made eight starts in the regular season at the major league level since then. Like, usually you maybe have a season or two of like you transition into being bad. You know, like I think about somebody like Felix Hernandez. Like, he was great and then things started to come apart and then he became bad. But it wasn't like he went from great to bad in one year or in a, over the course of a few months. actually the closest thing I can think of to this is Jordan Zimmerman who left the Nats went to Detroit and was just like awful for his entire tenure with the Tigers but at least he pitched you know like he got hurt a good amount but at least he had multiple seasons beyond his tenure with the Nats. This is you go from your peak World Series MVP off by the way, A 2019 regular season in which he was pretty durable. That was the other thing. When they re signed him in December of 19, I remember saying, you know, this is risky, but Strasburg did demonstrate the durability this past season to where, you know, maybe he's kind of figured some things out with his health. And instead, it has just all unraveled. And, you know, the poetry slash irony slash whatever you want to call it of on the spectrum of mega money starting pitching contracts, the Nats are on one end. With maybe the greatest success of them all in the Max Scherzer contract, and on the other end with maybe the biggest fail of them all with this Steven Strasburg contract, it's almost like the baseball god said, "Okay, you got one over on us with Max, but now we're going to do you with this Strasburg scenario." Like that is something the two extremes the Nats have experienced with mega money pitching contracts over the last decade
1: or so. Yeah, it is pretty striking, and and when we look back on this era and think of those two. Contracts and how they played out. One of them you could not have asked for it to go any better, you know, other than the Nats keeping him through the end of it, but that that was for other reasons. Max certainly delivered and then some for the entirety of his seven-year deal. And then Steven, of course, has not really been able to deliver at all since signing the most recent extension. But, you know, like you were saying, in most of these cases, the pitcher ends up being not as good, but they do pitch. And then maybe they deal with something physically. The problem has not been that he hasn't been a good pitcher. it's that he hasn't been able to actually pitch to actually take the out. And that was so sudden. And I think, you know, the questions that are forever going to be out there and you wonder are number one, did all the extra work in October, 2019 cause anything? Did the COVID shutdown and then try to ramp up in 2020 do anything? Did the surgery that he wound up having for carpal tunnel syndrome, was that maybe a wrong diagnosis or wasn't necessary. And then that created more problems. And then ultimately the thoracic outlet surgery, it just the series of events in which nothing could go right for him beyond, you know, when he signed that deal in December after the World Series. It's pretty crazy. And you know, you're trying to think of comparable examples. Maybe the closest one sounds crazy, but Sandy Koufax, <laughs> who was forced into retirement at age 30, shocked the world.
4: Question is why I don't know if cortisone is good for you or not. But uh, to take a shot every other ball game is uh, more than I wanted to do, and to walk around with a constant upset stomach because of the pills, and to be high half the time during a ball game because you're taking (laughs) painkillers—that's I don't want to don't want to have to do that.
1: Now he was pitching great up to that point, but he had significant elbow problems. Probably we didn't know it at the time. Probably had a, a torn. A ligament in his elbow would have had Tommy John surgery if it was available to him and his career just ended just like that. Now, Strasbourg it's been a slower issue and he has made a few starts and several surgeries. But yeah, there are not a lot of examples of pitchers like this who hit the peaks that he did and then have the rug pulled out from underneath him like that.
0: Hey, are you a law firm partner or associate stuck in the minor leagues like Joey Fourbags Your employer might be holding you back from your true potential. Maybe another law firm can get you what you need, more money, better support, better client contacts, or a better brand name. You need a better agent. You need Mason Kalfas. Mason Kalfas, he started Zenith Legal in 2015 to be the best legal recruiter in the nation, and he has succeeded. He has placed partners and associates at over half Of the largest 100 law firms in the U.S., he specializes in working with lawyers at major law firms and government agencies such as the DOJ and SEC like Joey Manessis' big breakout, Mason Kalfas can help you identify what you really need to accelerate your legal career. He will work with you to find the best law firm for your practice and negotiate you the absolute best deal, a deal worthy of a superstar free agent. The legal market still is very strong in 2022, and there's no better time than the present to think about making a move. You need to call Mason Kalfas, at Zenith Legal. His number is 202-486-3535. Or you can check out his website, zenithlegal.com. He has a team of recruiters across the country, but you will get tons of personal attention from Mason. It's time to launch your career into the upper deck. Call Mason Kalfas today. Go Nats and go Joey.
2: We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all
4: You need Indeed.
2: The one two pitch to Abrams. Swinging a ground ball, base hit right field. Here comes the winning run call. He'll score.
0: They're going to mob Abrams around first as the Nationals beat the Braves three to two in 10 innings. Some happier thoughts, or at least uh, happier things to be thinking of with the Nationals. So, you know, we know the deal, right? So much of this season is about how the young potential building blocks perform. I mean, it seems to me you have like six guys in particular to be thinking about, and you certainly can expand beyond the six, but you think about Mackenzie Gore, Cade Cavalli, Josiah Gray, Kbert Ruiz, Luis Garcia, and CJ Abrams. Like those six guys are the six on whom I would like to think we're going to focus on for the bulk of this upcoming season. Anything stand out to you over the first week or so of spring training in, in watching, you know, those of uh, from that group who have been there, things that have kind of stood out to you? I, I guess in particular, it would be with the pitchers and with Kbert Ruiz. But I mean, you know, these are the guys uh, who we're going to really be fixated on as this season goes on.
1: Yeah, I agree with you. I think those are the big six that we should be focused on right now. And there could be more coming maybe before the season is over. but At the moment, those are the six that you're hoping to build around. I think what stands out with the pitchers, all three of them are healthy right now, knock on wood. Remember, Cavalli and Gore ended the season on the IL. Both of them appear by all counts to be fully recovered. They've participated in everything. They're on track for everything. They've already faced live hitters. I've watched them face hitters here in the last couple of days. Everything seems to be good with them. They're in a good mood. They understand that this is a big opportunity now for them. And Josiah Gray, health was never the issue. He made all his starts last year until they decided to shut him down. The issue with him was more fine-tuning some things to become a better pitcher. He certainly has worked on that stuff. I watched him today facing... Live hitters and that straight line to the plate that we talked about all last year, not flying open, not with that front foot turned to the side, much more in line with the plate. You know, so far, so good. He faced live hitters for the first time and was pleased with that. And of course, there's a lot more to go. Let's see how he does when he's really facing hitters in games and then when it really counts come April. But they're all in a good mood and and encouraged. And I I think what's interesting is you, you hear them talking about. I think they've turned the page as a franchise and understand that the focus is now on the young guys. Yes, Patrick Corbin is still here. Yes, they're hopeful that he can be better. God willing, he can't be any worse than he was last year. And he may still end up being the opening day starter just by default because of seniority and the lack of experience of the other guys. But they're not trying to suggest that he is the leader of this staff moving forward. They know it's about those three young guys leading the way, not just this year. But beyond. And so I think rightfully so, they are the center of attention here. Cabra Ruiz, everything looks great. You know, he's talked about trying to do even more now in his second year. He had a lot thrown on his plate last year. First time he wasn't officially a rookie, but essentially as a rookie catcher. Everybody agreed he had a fine season, but they know there's more there, especially offensively. And he's worked on that. Luis Garcia, he's bulked up. He looks like he's ready to try to hit the ball for some more power. I saw him take Hunter Harvey deep to the opposite field during live BP, for whatever that's worth. Uh, And C.J. Abrams just got here today, but he's excited to be here. And everybody throughout the organization talks about what a difference it made when he joined the team and was playing shortstop every day and the positive effect that had defensively on the pitching staff. So, I mean, there's a legitimate reason in all six of those cases to feel good about what they could be. Of course, they all have to actually go out and now prove it.
0: I do think that this season is a significant season for the two big pieces who the Nats got back from the Dodgers in the Max Scherzer trade, Turner trade, Kevit Ruiz, and Josiah Gray. And I don't want to be overly dramatic and say it's like make or break for those two. I mean, I would not say that, but you know, each guy is going now into his third major league season. And, you know, there definitely are higher levels that each guy needs to get to. With Kbert Ruiz, you do want to see him become more of an offensive force. They did not trade Max Scherzer and Trey Turner to just get a nice catcher or a decent catcher or a guy who's pretty good defensively. And you don't worry about the offense. Like, no, the idea was for Kbert Ruiz to be a franchise catcher or close to that. His offense has a ways to go. So I am very interested to see and what kind of an offensive season we get from K. Ruiz, with the understanding that with catchers, sometimes it does take a while for the offense to come around. So I, I keep trying to like tell myself that, but you know, he does need to be better offensively than what he has been. With Josiah Gray, you know, it is disturbing what we have seen over these last two seasons. He has stayed healthy, which is good. And maybe all of these experiences are gonna end up lending themselves toward him becoming the great pitcher that we want him to be. But you know, 40 starts, 211 and a third innings, an ERA of 511. And of course, what has been so disturbing has been all of the home runs that the guy has given up. And, you know, we know that that has to come down. I mean, 53 home runs allowed in 211 and a third innings. So I think it's really important that we see a better Josiah Gray this year. I think with Cade Cavalli and Mackenzie Gore, look, we want to see excellence from them as soon as possible. But the truth is, if each guy has a rough 2023, 20, He's going to be given ample opportunity in 2024 and beyond, and I would think that each guy is going to have some sort of a workload limit given the injury histories and uh, the youth of those guys. With Josiah Gray, again, I'm not saying make or break, but boy, it would be nice to see him not have an ERA above five, let's say, this season. It would be nice to see him not give up so many home runs, and with all of this talk about the mechanics, I do think that it's important that he in particular shows us something this season so that we can feel like these two guys who the Nats got in that trade that really has served as sort of the flagship of the rebuild, right? Max and Trey to the Dodgers, and you get back four players highlighted by Josiah Gray and K. Ruiz. I think it's significant what we get from Josiah Gray this season.
1: I agree with you. I think they would probably admit it too. And I look at it this way. The Soto-Bell trade, where you got five prospects out of them, you really do need at least one of them to become a star. <laughs> Maybe several years before we know that, but you need at least one of them to be a star and at least one more of them to be like a really good player and another one to be a solid big leaguer. You need that because of who you gave up. In the Scherzer-Turner trade, I don't think they necessarily have to be a star. You would love for that to happen, but I think you understand you traded away two months of Max Scherzer, one and a half years of trade Turner. But you do need these guys to be viable long-term pieces to the puzzle. I think Cabot Ruiz has the best chance of the two to be a top notch player at his position. Like there's a ceiling there that he could be an all star catcher because of what that position entails. We know he's got the defensive skills, the throwing skills, got to get better at calling games. But I think with experience, that comes. And he's got to be able to hit, you know, 270, 280 with some pop. And I think he has the ability to do that. And if he can be that, that's great. You want that. In Josiah Gray's case, he's the first to admit that he wasn't really fully satisfied with last year, nor should he be when you look at the final totals. There were moments within it that you said, hey, okay, there's really something there. I think what's striking to me here is two ways that he's trying to go about being better and avoid those big blowups that he had, and particularly the home runs. The mechanics thing we talked about, trying to be more on a straight line to the plate, that's about trying to fix his fastball to not leak back over the middle of the plate. That's the pitch that killed him last year, the fastball. The other thing that he's doing, and I think in some ways this is a little more subtle, but maybe more interesting, he's trying to incorporate more pitches into the mix. He told me that he's now working on a cutter, a cut fastball that's going to move a little slightly. We know late last season he started throwing a two-seamer, a sinker, to move that way. We already know in advance that the curveball and the slider are two very effective pitches. When he's at his best, there were times last year he almost started throwing those almost exclusively. My takeaway from all this is, he may be realizing or somebody has told him, you're going to be better the less you throw straight fastballs. So you've got to find other pitches to throw. Now, you got to have something with velocity on it, but it's going to have to be moving somewhat or at least keep hitters off balance and make them not just be able to sit on a pitch coming straight at them. So a cutter is going to be close to fastball speed, maybe breaking a little bit away from righties in on lefties. A sinker is going to be breaking in and down on a right-hander, away and down on a left-hander, the more pitches he can add like that and then know that he can go to his curveball and his slider to put away hitters, I think that gives him the best chance. So it's almost like an acknowledgement that, hey, that four-seam fastball is just not good enough to get big league hitters out. You've got to find another way to do it. We'll see. That's a lot of stuff there to discuss and to evaluate and a lot of things that have to go right. But I think there does seem to be a concerted effort to try to mold him into being a little bit of a different kind of pitcher than we saw last year.
0: Yeah. I mean, I'm always – sort of hesitant to say, all right, young pitcher, add more pitches to your plate, because it feels like that could really become confusing. And especially for a guy with mechanical issues, you know, if he's got to start worrying about all these different pitches that he's trying to throw. But, you know, maybe in doing that, he does sort of stumble into a formula that works for him. I mean, every pitcher is different. And so maybe he's one of these guys who has to use an array of pitches in order to be successful because what he has been doing so far has not worked out so well. And he's gotten hammered. And remember this too, with the home runs last year, especially that was a down season for home runs in the majors. And yet still he gave up a lot of home runs. So you think about what if we were in a home run, happy environment, you know, how bad might things be? So he's got to get that under control. And if he does, he still can be a very good pitcher. I mean, we are only talking about 200 plus major league innings in the regular season. Like that's really not that big of a sample size, but I think the concern would be if he has a third consecutive disappointing season for the Nats, you do start to creep into that Eric Fetty territory of first round pick. Is he going to pan out? Why is it not happening? Do we need to be more patient? You know, what's going on here? And, you know, you end up waiting for something that maybe never comes. So I'm excited to see what we do get from Josiah Gray this season. We know we have a bunch of new rules in MLB this coming season. And I know one of the first videos that you tweeted out from National Spring Training was Kyle Finnegan working with a pitch clock. I mean, you know, I think you certainly could argue out of all the changes, the pitch clock may well be the biggest thing. Are pitchers at Nats camp routinely throwing with pitch clocks?
1: Yes, they are everywhere you look. (laughs) They've got them set up in the bullpens. On the practice fields, they are very much trying to get them used to this idea. So, For those who don't know, it is when the pitcher receives the ball back from the catcher, the clock starts. It's 15 seconds when there's nobody on base. It's 20 seconds when there is somebody on base. But I think this is interesting. We're calling it a pitch clock, and we think about the impact it has on pitchers. People around here seem to think it actually has more impact on hitters than pitchers. And that's because the hitter has to be in the box and ready to go with eight seconds left on the clock. And that's a big adjustment for guys who step out, adjust their batting gloves, think through in their head, okay, he threw me this. What's he going to look for on this one or that? It's also going to affect how quickly the signs have to come in from the dugout to the third base coach to the hitter. It is definitely going to be a process for all of them to get used to this. Now, I think it's actually important that they are doing it, that everybody is doing this right from the start in spring training. And Remember, we've seen at times over the years where there are new rule changes, and sometimes they don't even come into play until you get to the regular season or even into the season. Remember, the checking for the sticky stuff happened in the middle of the season. They're doing this right from the get-go, and I think they're doing that because they want everybody to have all spring to try to get used to it so that perhaps by the time opening day arrives, it's a little more comfort. Level for everyone with it. There are going to be some stumbling blocks. Those first couple weeks, we're probably going to be talking a lot about automatic balls, automatic strikes that are called, hopefully, none that actually impact like a significant moment in the game, but it may happen. But the feeling is that once they get through that initial period of everybody learning how to deal with it, that within a few weeks, It should become routine and something that everybody just gets used to and we don't even think about it anymore. And I think back to the sticky stuff, as big a deal as that was in those first few days, eventually got to a point that we didn't even pay attention to it anymore. And it's going to be good for the game. Everybody acknowledges it's going to speed up the game and that's the number one thing.
0: It's a must. I mean, you cannot continue to have on the regular three-plus-hour regular season games. I mean, it's just not compatible with the way life is for most people in the year 2023. I'm very happy that MLB's doing this. I know Rob Manfred takes a lot of grief for a lot of reasons. I do applaud him though. He is a forward-thinking guy. He he is thinking of things that I don't think his predecessor thought of and that I don't think a lot of other people in the game have thought of. And that is trying to make the game quicker and more appealing to younger people and so yeah, let's do these pitch clocks and see what ends up happening. And you know, to the point about like getting used to it. I think so often in baseball and in sports and in life, there's a big change, and everybody complains about it. And then, like ten minutes later, you're used to it a lot quicker than you ever thought. And everyone lives happily ever after. You know, the sticky stuff is a perfect example. Remember night one of that, the fit, the tantrum that our friend, that our friend Max are through. And not only did he throw the tantrum, but so many people in the media bought that and said, oh, how can MLB be doing this? This is going to be such a disaster. The game will never be the same. And then like a day later, everything was fine. Everything was normal. And nobody even notices the sticky stuff checkups anymore. And I tend to think that that's what's going to happen with the pitch clock. To your point, there probably will be a few incidents in April, okay? And they will be all over Sports Center, and people will go nuts over them. And then a day later, no one will remember. And then a week later, everything will be just fine. And I tend to think that that's how something like this is going to play out. You get used to things a lot quicker than you realize. We all complain. And then the next day, we're all fine.
1: Yeah, I tend to agree. It is going to generate headlines, of course. That's the way the world works now. And things happen so quickly. They spread so quickly that some moment's going to go viral when uh, something costs a, a team a game because of an automatic ball or strike or whatever else. Now, the other real changes are going to have a significant impact as well. The lack of the shift, you're going to notice it. It's going to prioritize middle infielders who can cover a lot of ground are going to be at a premium. Maybe this helps a guy like CJ Abrams stand out versus others, but it's also really going to help hitters who, you know, a line drive to right field and a hard hit grounder up the middle that for a hundred years we've just thought off the bat that's a base hit and all of a sudden weren't anymore. Those are going to be hits now. We met Jamer Candelario for the first time, and uh, he was one of those who the thought was, oh, the shift, the lack of the shift might help him. And when the question was brought up to him, he like clapped his hands together and said, I love it. I love it. He's like genuinely excited for it. I think Dominic Smith's another guy who could benefit from it. So I think that's going to be a big deal. And the thing that we haven't talked about as much two things. Number one, the larger bases, which should encourage more stolen base attempts, more running maybe some more infield singles as well and the limit on pickoff attempts you only get 2 of them if you try a third time you have to get him out the runner out if not it's called a balk the runner automatically gets to go in addition to the you know adapting to that there's going to be a lot of strategy involved in all of these things managers smart managers and front offices are going to come up with ideas of ways to try to exploit these because it's what they always do and whether it's the pickoff attempt thing or even the clock, somebody raised this to me. A batter is allowed to call timeout once and step out of the box. After that, he can't do it again. So consider this scenario you're in the box, you're out of timeouts, and you have to be in the box with eight seconds to go. The pitcher can throw his pitch whenever he wants, as long as it's before the clock runs out. Let's say he's on the mound, he's ready to go in eight seconds, the batter's ready to go in eight seconds, and now the pitcher just stands there and holds the ball for seven and a half seconds. Typically, A batter gets uncomfortable waiting that long, he's gonna call for time to step out. You can't do that anymore if you've already burned yours up. So maybe the pitcher can catch the hitter off guard. There's a lot of different things they can play around with here if they want to and try to exploit it. Nobody's really gonna know how this goes until we actually see it all in practice.
0: Now, can a batter in theory fake injury and say, oh, I called my timeout, but you know, I just pulled a groin or a hamstring. You gotta give me a breather here. Is there an injury exception? Could we have players trying to do stuff like
1: that? Oh my arm, on oh, my arm. Oh, oh. Yeah, um I think it's the umpire's discretion as far as I'm as I understand it to be and they will have to determine if something's legit or not cuz sure there could be a time even forget about injury but like hey there's a bug in my eye <laughs> or something like that. I don't know. It's going to be fascinating to see how much leeway umpires give them. You tend to think oh you're going to start it out and the umpires are going to let some things slide. My understanding is they've told them, no, you need to enforce this from the get go, and it's going to upset some people, but it's the only way to get them to adapt and get used to it. And so there could be some ugly moments here early in the season because the umpires are not being lenient and they're going to enforce all of these rules.
0: I'm interested to see how strict these umpires are because years ago, And I mean years ago, the umpires were told to strictly enforce batters needing to have one foot in the batter's box at all times, unless like there's a real reason to say, okay, go ahead and step out fully. And umpires, by and large, have done an awful job of enforcing that for years. That's one of the reasons why we've had to go to the pitch clock because I don't think these home plate umpires have done a very good job in that regard. I think these home plate umpires are culpable in these games being as long as they are. So I'm interested to see that. Do these umpires actually, you know, uphold the law of the land now with everything going on here? We'll see.
1: You know, when Angel Hernandez is in charge, I think we can be confident that everything's going to run. It's going to be a tight ship. Everything's going to be just fine.
0: Hey guys, it's Al Galdi for Window Nation. Spring training time is a time for optimism, but unfortunately also is a time, at least early in spring training, for cooler temperatures. Well, Window Nation has the coolest deal ever to keep you warm. See what I did there? (laughs) Pay zero down, make zero payments, and get 0% financing for 24 months. That is two years, no interest, plus get two free windows with every two windows that you buy, no Limit take advantage of window nations, deep discounts, all oh, while reinvesting in your biggest asset, your home, not to mention the energy savings for years to come. Get yourself some great window nation windows by calling 866 90 Nation or visiting windownation.com and make sure that you tell Window Nation. That Al Galdi sent you. New Window Nation windows will save you money. Will save you up to 30% on your heating bills. Are your windows leaking? Hey, that can cause serious structural damage to your home and can cause mold to grow. Leaky windows can allow mold to grow inside your home completely unnoticed. Take care of that. Now is the time to get yourself some great Window Nation windows. Take advantage of this terrific offer. Zero money down, zero payments, and 0% financing for 24 months. Hey, the Nats might even be sold before you end up having to pay Window Nation. Call 866-90-NATION or visit WindowNation.com and tell Window Nation that Al Galdi sent ya. That's WindowNation.com or 866-90-NATION and make sure that you tell Window Nation that Al Galdi sent
1: Ted Lerner helped bring baseball back to D.C. His company created homes and he owned popular shopping destinations that thousands of us visit. That's right.
2: The Nats owner died on Sunday. The Washington Post was first to break the news this morning, reporting the 97-year-old died from pneumonia complications. Lerner's family bought the Nats back in 2006. They oversaw the construction of Nats Park and the development in Navy Yard.
0: So we've been talking for a while and we have yet to use the word sale at any point in this installment of the Nats Chat Podcast. I think we all needed a break from all of the sale talk, but the truth is there isn't much to say. The sale of the Nationals appears to have stalled and it may well be that the Nats are going to be owned by the learners for a while. The latest that came out was from Barry's Verlug of the Washington Post January 31st. Quote, here's the reality of the national sale process. Some people with knowledge of it are under what one termed the operating assumption that the Lerner family will run the team for the entirety of the 2023 season. End quote. It was last April that the news broke that the Learners were open to selling the nationals. Here we are now. We're about to go, uh, well, we're nearing the end of the month of February, right? About to go into March. It's going to be a year since this news broke, and it certainly doesn't feel like the Nats are going to be sold. I think we all understand the big impediment to the sale, the nationals in uh, situation. Let me ask you this, because I got asked this question a lot. I think I know your answer is, and it's going to be similar to mine, but the passing of Ted Lerner, does that in any way impact the sale of the Nats or not really?
1: I don't think it does, only in that you know he was on board. Like I said, he had still had a lot of influence over these last several years. They would not have put the team up for sale if he wasn't fully behind that idea. So I don't think that his passing changes anything in that regard. I think the reality of the situation, as we've talked about, is the conditions for them selling the team on the terms that they want are just not there yet. And what they hope they would get, they're not getting for a variety of reasons. And so knowing the way they operate, I don't think this is a case of where they're just saying, hey, We just can't wait. Whatever our best offer is, we can't wait to get out of this mess. It's just not that situation. They will hold out as long as they feel like they need to to get what they think it is worth. And so I do think they are going to own the team for the foreseeable future and maybe even beyond that. But I think the question that it raises, and I I tried to bring it up with Rizzo during his press conference with us. You know, Rizzo is entering the final year of his contract. David Martinez entering the final year of his contract. These are big uncertain questions that they have and need to have answered before they know what their future is. But even beyond that, we saw how little they spent on the roster this year. They spent $16.5 million in free agency this winter. That's nothing. A year from now, if the learners still own the team, are they going to be in a position to spend more? Are they going to want to spend more? Is Mike Rizzo, if he's still the GM, going to go along with that, or is he going to feel like... Let's say some of these young big six we talked about start to step up and some of the other prospects are getting closer. Is there that Jason Worth move coming a year from now? And is the ownership willing to make that kind of commitment? So that's, I think, the huge looming question mark here. I don't see a sale of the team happening anytime soon now, but can they proceed on this path that they're on where you have a bare minimum payroll? They're going to top out probably around $100 million, which is their lowest in more than a decade. And that's kind of a false number because 60% of that goes to Strasburg and Corbin alone. They're not paying money to anybody else. So, a year from now, are they going to keep operating like the Oakland A's or the Tampa Bay Rays? Or are they going to start trying to invest again? We all felt like a new owner would step in and do that. Are the learners, if they're still in charge, going to do that? And I don't know the answer to that question.
0: Few things in sports are worse for a team than lame duck ownership. And now that we know that the current owners of the Nats don't really want the Nats anymore, but are sort of stuck with the Nats because of this in situation and because the learners aren't getting what they want with the Nats, I think that makes things even worse. You know, it would have been one thing if you say, all right, the Nats are up for sale. We went through the majority of last season knowing that, but they got sold early in the 2022-2023 offseason or early in the 2023 season. If this is going to extend for a second season now, and maybe beyond that, where you're owned by someone who doesn't really truly want you, that's bad. That's bad for morale. That's bad for baseball operations in terms of the front office. That's bad for building up a proper roster. If in fact you get to a point on the win curve at which you want to start spending money to try to become a contending team again. And, you know, I watched the exchange that you had with Mike Rizzo when you brought up his contract situation. So for those who are unaware, the Nats this past July 2nd announced having exercised the 2023 contract options on Mike Rizzo and Davey Martinez. Each guy is going into the final season of his contract. And, you know, Mike answered the question the way that he needed to answer the question. You know, I've worked on one-year contracts throughout my career and all that kind of a thing, and that's fine. And he should say that. But the sort of vibe I got from Mike was, he's kind of over all of this.
3: We're so locked in on on the on the day-to-day baseball side of it. I, I don't have time or the energy or the inclination to get involved in what's going on ab- uh, above me. They'll give me my marching orders and I will, I will uh, do them to the best of our ability and
0: he's had to answer questions or at the very least deal with contractual uncertainty for a very long time. And that's the way that it's been, but that's not the way that it's supposed to be. And that's not the way that it is with a lot of teams. You know, most high level general managers these days now, they're not on one year contracts year in and year out. Okay. Like 30, 40, 50 years ago, GMs and managers, you know, you think about Walter Alston with the Dodgers. The famous thing with him was he was on like 20 something consecutive one year deals or something. That's something from like, you know, the dinosaur ages at this point. Now, look, is Mike Rizzo a high level GM? That's a separate conversation, but he certainly has done a lot with this team. And if you believe in him, you know, it's pretty warped that we keep having to dance this dance of, okay, Mike, your contract's coming up this year. What's going to happen? And to a lesser extent, The same thing with Davey. I mean, if you want this rebuild to go smoothly and to go effectively, you want a front office that is empowered, that has a true direction, and that feels like, okay, we're here to stay. We're building something and we don't have to think about, well, maybe we're going to be out. So maybe that's going to impact our decision-making. And so I think it's bad on a lot of levels. You know, we've also talked about, hey, if you have lame duck ownership, are you spending on infrastructure the way that you need to be? We've talked about the Nationals being so behind other teams in analytics. Well, are they properly staffing the baseball ops department with analytics people if ownership is trying to sell the team and maybe not investing in the team as much as needs to be happening? So yeah, it's rough. And it just, I think what's really unfortunate about all of this is that the sale appears to be going nowhere. And I don't think anyone is anticipating that changing anytime soon. And so, you know, it could be that a year from now, we're still talking about the ownership uncertainty with the Nats. And, you know, it's one thing when you're a bad team like the Nats are right now, but when they do start to climb out of the rebuild, and they will, then what? And, you know, that's going to be a significant item.
1: You know, I think a year ago, it was perfectly acceptable for them to proceed the way they did, believing they were going to sell the team within a year. Well, you're not going to go and give your GM and manager long-term extensions and then hand that over to a new owner. You also weren't going to go and fire anybody and hire somebody new knowing that you probably aren't owning the team much longer. So you extend them for a year. The problem is now you're in this position again and you say, well, how do you proceed? If they're still trying to sell the team and think there's a reason that that could happen in the next year, are you going to offer one-year deals to them and are they going to accept that? Probably not, I would think. Are you going to offer something longer term and then if so, are you now handing that over to a new owner? Or are you now coming to the realization that you're actually going to own the team for a longer period of time, in which case you can make longer term decisions. So All these things, you can't answer any of the questions until you know the answer to the biggest question of them all. Whether we know it publicly or not is one thing, but I would hope for Mike Rizzo and Davey Martinez's sake and everybody who works underneath them, that they get some kind of clarity from ownership. What is the plan? What is the strategy? Not just this year, but beyond. I think they've earned that right to know where this thing is going. Now, maybe they do. Maybe they have gotten that sense, and we just don't know it publicly. But to think that this could just all play out, and now they're stuck in this situation where, again, do you give them one year to come back, or do you fire, or do you not renew them at the end of the year? Do they decide they want to walk? I don't know. It's a messy situation, potentially very messy situation. Up top, you know, they don't have to do it immediately. I know they're dealing with, obviously, a much larger Family issue and mourning the loss of their patriarch. But as we get closer to opening day and they have to proceed forward, we do have to have some kind of sense of what is the plan this year and beyond. And even if we don't hear it, at least the people in charge of all these departments need to hear it.
0: And you think about this too, because look, it may well be that Mike Rizzo should not be the GM anymore. You know, he has not had a good last few years, he has not had a good last, you know, really decade in terms of drafting and player development. So if you say, all right, You know what? The heck with it. It's time for the Nats to move on from Mike Rizzo anyway. Okay. So now you're going to be in the market for a new GM. In theory, you want to get someone who's smart and forward thinking and on the rise. So, what are you going to offer him a one year deal? You know, like if you're trying to get one of these, you know, high level Ivy League types or someone who is, you know, sought after. By other teams, and as an up and coming guy with another organization, like you're gonna have to spend some money. You're gonna have to give this guy, you know, a three year contract, a five year contract. You're gonna have to pay him more than probably you've been paying people for a while in terms of front office people. Are you gonna be willing to do that if you are trying to sell the team and are not, you know, all in on owning the team? And so that really is problematic. You know, lame duck ownership is bad. It's a kind of thing that filters on down. Throughout the organization. And so, you know, hopefully this thing gets resolved sooner rather than later. But, you know, until the Masson thing gets resolved, it's hard to see the Nats being sold. I know there is a prevailing belief that until the Orioles are sold, the Nationals will not be sold because the Orioles being sold might lead to some sort of resolution with the Masson situation. And then the Nats get sold. But what if the Orioles don't get sold? So, you know, you can twist your mind into knots thinking about all of this. But it doesn't take away from the fact of this is not a good predicament. You know, with the Nats, there's the baseball on the field situation and there's the ownership situation. And, you know, there are two situations that are big deals, but they're tied together. And I don't know if one gets fixed before the other gets fixed. And uh, that's kind of the problem with all this. So we shall see. Well, we are thrilled to be with you for season three of the Nats Chat Podcast. Always know that you can reach us via Twitter. Uh, You can tweet us at Nats underscore chat. You can email the podcast as well, NatsChatPodcast at gmail.com, including if you would like to sponsor the Nats Chat Podcast, email Tim Shover's NatsChatPodcast at gmail.com. You can find us on Instagram too, at NatsChatPodcast. Uh, If you're listening to this podcast on Apple Podcasts or on Spotify, please consider giving the podcast a five-star rating. And uh, if you're listening on Apple Podcasts, please consider writing a review of the podcast. The ratings and the reviews help us out a lot. And uh, we thank you very much for doing them. All Nationals radio highlights on Natch Chat are courtesy of 106.7 The Fan. We thank Tim Newmark for the great new opening theme of the Natch Chat podcast. And we thank you for listening. For Mark Zuckerman, I'm Al Galdi, and we'll talk to you next time on the Natch Chat podcast. The 0-2 pitch. Ring them up, strike
2: three, called a curveball over the inside corner, locked them up at 70 miles an hour. Espino has two strikeouts in his third consecutive 1-2-3 inning. Paulo is fan
0: five.